Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Coming up... Personally, I think lobbying register is is a is a band-aid solution. I don't think it's I think it's anywhere near transparent enough. I don't think it can be fixed either. You don't need to be rich or powerful or a massive corporation to get time with the minister. When you compare even the situation here just now, even with Westminster, where you've got you know a very only registered lobbyists have to be on the register of lobbyists, it's not even loopholes there. It's just absolute you know sort of falling straight down into a pit. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Very warm welcome to the latest episode of my Herald podcast. Now, we've got a special edition this week, building on the quite remarkable series in the Herald all week on who runs Scotland. For the series, data was gathered by the Ferret, an investigative news cooperative of renown. Now, it covers everything. The series covers everything from, from lobbying to quangos, from whiskey to wind farms. And to discuss all that, all of that, I'm just joined by uh, two journalists, by two lobbyists given prominent billing in the report from the Herald. Delighted to welcome Alistair Grant from the Ferret, Karen Goodwin, co-editor, and then the lobbyists, Andy McKeever of Message Matters and James McKenzie, who specialises in environmental issues. A very warm welcome to you all. Uh, Alistair, let's go. We're going to try and discuss a load of things that were raised in the series, but given the guests and given the, the, the tenor, let's go with lobbying First, bring us up to speed on, on what was said in the series. Yes, yeah, so as you say, it was an investigation by the Ferret, published in the Herald, um, that essentially found in relation to lobbying that hundreds of meetings between Scottish ministers and kind of multinationals, wealthy individuals, other outside interests, uh, were left off the lobbying register last year due to essentially kind of loopholes in the legislation. So the issue is that under the Lobbying Scotland Act 2016, uh, which came into force in 2018, uh, all face-to-face lobbying is regulated, so details must be given about the subject of the discussion, the purpose, uh, what, what was said, uh, the people involved. Uh, however, lobbying by phone calls or emails, other communications such as WhatsApps, uh, are not included. Uh, and ministers also don't need to uh, enter things, or meetings, sorry, don't, don't need to be entered in the register if they were instigated by a minister. Um, so the existence of these meetings was... Uh, revealed by the ferret in the diaries of ministers, uh, ministerial engagements, which is published monthly. Um, however, these often only contain really a kind of couple of words to describe what was discussed um, and might not even have uh, all the relevant names. So it's very much an issue of transparency and how power operates in Scotland. Okay, Alison, thanks for that. So we, we've got the issue of the of the unregistered. We've got the issue generally of the extent of of lobbying of the Scottish government, and also, I should stress, of the of the UK government, including the Scotland office. We'll come to that later. But Karen, Karen from the the the, the FedEx that's got the source, Karen, the, the, is there something you know wrong going on? Is it not reasonable for organisations to get their points of view across the government? Yeah, well, I think first of all, um, from the offset, we were very clear that there's nothing wrong with lobbying in itself, and in fact. Lobbying is a really essential part of the democratic process. But what we were interested in was issues around transparency. And that's something that a lot of the campaigners have have been raising with us. Issues around transparency and clarity and also concerns about a couple of things. Concerns about um, uh, sort of um, the way that lobbying tilts in favour of those that can afford it. And also, um, you know, just kind of... uh, you know, closeness to power, I suppose, and some of those revolving doors that, that come around and, and what that might mean for, again, transparency issues. What, what's, what's your take? Is, is, it, is, it, is it sinister? Is it, is it straightforward? What, what's your take on, on that sort of spectrum? I think the thing about 
but about, about kind of power and influ- influences, it can be quite nebulous, right? Yeah. And so I think that um, it is reasonable that when you go into a meeting, even for some other purpose, you might find yourself in a position that would, um, in other circumstances, if it did need to be kind of registered as registered lobbying, might constitute that. And therefore, if we had minutes and better, um, you know, re- sort of a, a wider range of things that were put onto uh-huh. the lobbying register, then um, we would have more scrutiny over that. Another thing that's come up is that the timing of that and just how quickly those ministerial engagements, for example, as scant as, as they are, are published. And there's often a six month delay. By that point, uh, even looking at them retrospectively, you know, there's there's maybe the, the opportunity for raising questions has passed. So there's a couple of different things that are going on there that, you know, um, maybe undermine some of our of our real kind of ambitions for a, a very open, transparent democracy. And Karen, just before I bring in our, our, our other guest, Karen, you know, a, a number of organisations, um, perhaps on the environmental front, perhaps on the citizens side, for, just arguing that, that business has too much access to the government generally by comparison with other sectors of society. Yes, and, the yeah. and we did, you know, we looked through every meeting that the ministers had had in 2020 um, and we didn't we, we didn't manage to analyse completely how many um uh, were you know the percentages of, but it was very clear, particularly from certain ministers' diaries, that industry was was dominating. Um, it couldn't have been because they're dealing with the economy and they're trying to help Scotland grow. Absolutely, but when you look at the the you know if you're dealing with energy and you want to look at whether hydrogen is a good investment, you also want to hear the other side of that. You also want to hear about carbon capture. And there were very you know the the, the Scottish government said that 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 those were happening in 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 environmental briefs they have also um introduced a, a more sort of um cross departmental work way of working in this new term so i think even themselves they recognize the need to hear those range of voices at such a crucial point as we go up to the cop 26 for example okay, thank, thank, thanks for that hold, hold those thoughts for a minute lots to talk about there let's bring in andy mckeever andy you were top of the pops you were you were number one among, among the, the the lobbyists congratulations on that uh, much more seriously what, what about the uh, the argument there that you 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 you're a filter you're a channel you're a conduit for business to to you know pour their ideas into the ears of ministers where others perhaps don't have that access um, look, it's not really about access, to be honest. Um, it's not difficult in Scotland. Scotland's a very open system, it's a very open government, it's a very open parliament. It's not difficult to meet MSPs, it's not difficult to meet ministers. Um, it's really more about expertise than anything else. I, I think there's a few, I mean, you know, lobbying has been subject to, to a number of investigations of this sort uh, over the last couple of years. And I actually think that um, it's generally been a good thing. I'm, I'm supportive of the lobbying register because what it does is it shows that what people thought was there is not really there. Um, you know, it was a, a problem which a lot of people thought existed, but actually generally doesn't, because as lobbyists always knew, the vast majority of what we do, well, for a start, it's for charities. You can see from the official figures, far from it being a big business-led occupation. I mean, uh, obviously, I, the, the, the off-register stuff, I, I, I don't have numbers for, I can't answer to, but there are mm-hmm. official numbers published by the registrar. Um, and charities account for more than double the returns of any other sector. Um, so this is largely, uh, I, know, I mean, and, and the vast majority of my clients, I publish all my clients of, over the last 10 years on the website. Every single client I've ever worked for is on yes. our website. We do that proactively. And if you look on the website, you'll see the vast majority of them are charities. And they're charities you can't afford to uh, hire a comms professional full time. So they hire the time and the expertise of people I like us. To go in and, 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 and middleman. 
I'll bring in James in a second, but Karen, you're looking very skeptical at that. Well, I just, I, I actually did this, this kind of analysis, at looking specifically at ministers and special advisors. And actually, we found two things. Charities did come out slightly higher on the register when you look at just ministries and charities, but only slightly, certainly not double, nothing like that. And actually, in the last year, charities have really fallen away. And it's industry and business that dominate in 2020 on the lobbying register for regulated lobbying. So that's not actually accurate when you look at ministers and special advisors. Andy, what about that? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't say it was ministers and special advisors. I said it was the official, it's the official numbers from the registrar. So it's more it's a complaint with the registrar rather than with me. Um, but I think that you know that there are um, there are issues. There's no question about the fact that there are quite a number of issues. And I think that it's it is worth exploring what they are. For example, the exemptions are definitely worth exploring. For instance, you see. On the registered returns, there are very few returns from trade unionists. Now, according to the law, trade unions are lobbyists. That, that's what the law says. So they are lobbyists. Very few returns. And the reason for that, of course, is that if a trade union is talking to an MSP or minister or special advisor about pay and conditions, it's exempt. It's not registrable. So there are lots of things, I think, to look into in this. I think the exemptions need to be significantly slimmed down. Because in my view, this is a good thing. I think we should see exactly what's going on because when you do see what's going on, you begin to understand what lobbying actually is. It's not a dark art. It's basically about spreadsheets. You know, and it's not actually, you know, it's far from... What, what, what do you mean by that? I don't understand before. that. Well, the, the vast majority of what we do is actually quite administrative work. It is creating strategies and creating plans to make sure that our clients can get their message across to MSPs and ministers and government so that they can, uh, you know, uh, hopefully uh, exert change and influence there, which will help them go about whatever business they want to go about. And, you know, as I say, the vast majority of, of my clients are, are charities, many businesses as well. But... You know, you tend not to, in these reports, you tend to hear about, um, you know, the, the, the big businesses that get worked for. You don't tend to hear about the small charities that a lot of lobbyists do a lot of work for, which is much more common. Let's bring in James McKenzie. James, you came a little further down, down, down the list than Andy, and, and you, but you, you managed to cope with, with that disappointment by, by putting out a tweet saying, saying that if, if folk can't afford Andy, they can always come to you if they want to do good. You, you see yourself as doing, doing, doing good, do you? I mean, that, that wicked attempt to undercut your rival was one thing, but you see yourself as, as doing good. Some might be a bit sceptical about that. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for an industry, if you want to call it an industry that specialises in crafting public opinion, shaping ministers' views about them, I've got terrible comms. People think lobbying is bribes and the, all the tobacco industry and the arms industry and all that kind of thing. And uh, as far as I know, there are no bribes in Scotland. The, the industries that I don't approve of definitely do do lobbying. But my, I, mean, I'm, I personally work for entirely either environmental NGOs or the renewable sector or uh -huh. other charities. And, and yeah, and actually, I do see the real imbalance that you're talking about. I'll give you yeah, one practical but I mean, example. Even sticking to the renewable sector, even, even, even the renewable sector, that, that is in itself contentious. It's, you know, wind farms are themselves are contentious. Offshore uh, wave and wind and tidal is contentious. And it, it might be cutting out somebody that's from a different point of view. Are you not, you know, you say you're trying to persuade, but is it, could it not be argued you're persuading against another point of view that maybe isn't getting a hearing? Oh, I certainly think that both, it, I would love both sides of every issue to get an equal hearing. Yeah. But that's a question of who you elect and who they want to listen to. You know, you can, I'm thinking of particular ministers, including perhaps some recently departed, who's, who were absolutely on, the, on one side of every issue and the environmental NGOs never got heard. So, uh, yeah, no, you, 
I, 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 I can't imagine who you have, have in mind there. Can't imagine who that is. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the listeners will be able to figure it out. But um, I'm certainly not going to name I, the individual. I'll leave it to you. No, I'm not going to either. Um, so, <laughs> personally, I think lobbying register is is a is a band aid solution. I don't think it's uh-huh. I think it's anywhere near transparent enough. I don't think it can be fixed either. Um, one of the things that it includes, which it, is questionable. So some of my entries that, that Karen talked about, I'm meeting opposition MSPs to brief them on where government is supporting or licensing environmental damage. And then I have to register that and what, it, what it, the topic of it needs to go in the, on the register. So actually, it, if that publishes very quickly and it's a bit of a lag with it, you could end up tipping off government on how to avoid PR disasters or to be, avoid being held accountable. I think yeah. that's a, not, not people think of as lobbying. But personally, what I think would be more suitable would be all government ministers must minute all meetings and they must all be published within a week or 10 days. With even, casual chats in, in, even casual chats in the Holyrood Chamber or, or you know, at a, a social event that's designed for something else entirely. Only where somebody's trying to influence policy. I mean, I think okay. if, you, if you meet them at the 19th hall and you're like, I could use a tax break for my oil uh, business, <laughs> yeah. then yeah, you should register that. Absolutely, you should register yeah. that. Yeah. You know, in, yeah. in the same way, I was quite happy to register a meeting with an MSP in the vegetable aisle, as I talked about before, uh-huh. where I actually wanted it for a photo op. But, but those, and there are exemptions that you should apply. I mean, some, of, some stuff is, is commercially confidential, and that's covered by the, the terms of freedom of information. So I think I, 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 I would just make them all public. Yeah. Alistair, there's a lot. There's a lot of skepticism about lobbying, to say the least. There's a lot of skepticism, isn't there? I mean, what, what are you? What, what's been the response to? You know, we'll come to the other elements of the series. Remarkable series, I say. What's been the response generally on on the question of of lobbying? Well, I think the points made are quite right. That people have this view of the lobbying industry is kind of shadowy and necessarily a bad thing, and it's you know a huge and kind of varied industry. I mean, all lobbying really is is trying to put forward your interests, whatever they are, to the Scottish government, to, to ministers, to people who can enact change uh-huh. and to MSPs as well. And um, so there's a huge kind of range of lobbying. Uh, and for charities... Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't lobbying, you know, funded lobbying, fee-paid lobbying, give privileged access to one sector that perhaps others can't afford, Alistair? Well, I think, I mean, it's, accusation, isn't it? to, to use a cliche, I suppose money is power to a degree. And yeah, wealthy yeah. individuals will always have access to government in a way that other people might not. But you can see that from the kind of, kinds of people who secure meetings with government ministers sometimes. Yeah, OK. Um, well, just on, on, on that very, hold that thought on that very thing. Uh, question, uh, name is Sarah Collins put in a question. Charities lobbying, I'm reading it out now, charities lobbying government doesn't mean governments listen. This isn't just about access, but about whose influence is most powerful. And she says business and corporate lobbyists don't just have more access, they have more power as they are listened to. Just the point you were making there, Alistair. She asks why. Um, why, why would, do, you, do you think that's an accurate description, first of all, uh, Karen? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. And, you know, as Alistair said, their money does talk. Um, and when people have got more to lose, then, you know, they really do need to listen closely and they need to think about the ramifications of not giving an organisation or business what it is that they are there for and to come up with ways of negotiating so that, it, it, that they are not stymied in some way from something else that they want to do. So I think that, you know, that is not always the case with charities. Now, charities always also do provide a range of services but they are very often on the back foot here in the, in the power dynamic. So, yes, this is, access is one uh, thing. Yeah. You know, can I, can I finish, Karen, and then I'll bring in Andy right away. Yeah, sure. But access is one thing, and access is not equal, I would say, firstly. And then secondly, yeah, who, who, gets, a, who gets a better hearing 
is a definite is a definite issue. Andy McKeever. Look, it would be lovely if this was all correct. And it would be lovely if all lobbying was done by big tobacco and big oil and there were you know brown envelopes and all that sort of stuff. That would be great because it would make a good story. But it's not real, right? I mean, the reality is that this government and the and this and the ministers under this government are amongst the most egalitarian ministers I've ever come across. You don't need to be rich or powerful or a massive corporation to get time with the minister. I have had for some of my pro bono clients who are pro bono because they can't afford to pay me anything at all because they're such small charities I've had them in front of ministers and cabinet secretaries and why did they come to you why did they come to you why did they come to you because exactly because you can get them to time with ministers that they can't get (laughs) otherwise well actually no but but you see the it's it's more about expertise than anything else it's not about money they 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 don't it's about connections uh-huh, but there, there's no, they're not paying me anything. My pro bono clients are paying me anything. So anybody, any, any pro bono client could approach me and ask me to do a bit of work pro bono for them. This is not the closed shop that, is, that people want it to be. It's just not. I know people want it to be like that, but it isn't like James, that. James McKenzie. I mean, I, I love Andy very much, but I'm going to disagree with him on the, on the extent to which business shapes policy um, in, in line with the, the question that we were just asked. Overwhelmingly, on issue and issue and issue that I, that I work on, to the marine environment, rewilding, you name it, decisions are made that suit existing vested interests, whether it's the grouse shooters, whether it's the dredgers and trawlers, whoever it is. And, and the reason for that is not particularly about lobbying. That's about the politics of people who we put into government. And I'm afraid part of the consensus between, between conservative, SNP, liberal and Labour is we've got to put business interests first. We've got to do what we're told. We don't want to get a shoeing from the business pages. So well, some of this is... That, Andy, you, like, you were formally yeah. recognition for the Greens. I understand where you're coming from, and that's reasonable to make that point. But, but I mean, it, could it not just be that they, 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 they have the case that the ministers think is, is valid and, and that, that ultimately they believe that is the way to advantage Scotland rather than necessarily advantaging um, one sector of the economy? Yeah, I mean... And, well, you see, that, that's, but that, you're talking here... There's no, there, you've got to make a distinction here between money and size or influence. It's not about, it's not about business. We always want to draw this back to the private sector, right? We, this is what we want to do. We want to draw it back to capitalism and the private sector. But we're not talking here, for instance, about the influence of a massive trade union or a massive multinational environmental charity. They are clearly, you know, if you pick, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to name any organisations in this podcast. I think it's the wrong thing to do. But Pick a massive environmental charity and pick a tiny children's charity, okay? Clearly, the massive environmental charity has got more influence than the children's charity. But that's not because of money. That's because of size, uh, influence, uh, what they can do in terms of uh, carrying a message forward. So yeah. businesses can do that too, of course. But like a, a huge multinational corporation will have more influence than an SME with five staff. But that's not about business versus public it's not private versus public it's about size and that's different than money it's not the same thing Karen, not for the first time you're looking skeptical Karen <laughs> sorry well it is also about the, exp- the expenditure power of that organization right so it does actually boil down to money ultimately I think um I think what, so why not look at why not look at trade unions or other other we did look at trade unions, and, and I think you'll notice that um uh, Dave Moxham was also 
pulled out and quoted in my piece because trade unions were someone that I was uh, that were at the table often. Um, and what he was saying was, you know, we're in the room representing half a million members. We shout about what we do. We're very open about it. And, yeah. you know, you might say that's the same with 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 you in terms of, of putting things on the regulated rob- lobby register. But not all um, consultancies, as you know, are open and they certainly don't all give their client lists. And they don't say what they were what they were there to do. So can, that's can, a very can, different situation. Can I, let me put another point to you, a, 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 a challenging point to you. I mean, some of the examples you, you raise in very detailed and thorough work. You talk about ministers um, contacting interested parties with regard to the Bifab um, uh, fabrication yards in Methyl and Lewis. You talk about attempts to to rescue Scott, the, the steel industry in Scotland. You talk about attempts to contact the energy companies regarding the just just transition, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, shouldn't ministers be trying to sort out Bifab, sort out steel and sort out the just transition in the North Sea? Isn't that the, the, the job that they have? And that yeah. to do that, they would have to contact business. Yeah, absolutely. But why not contact a range of people? Business are not the only experts on these things. And I think the point is that there are workers, there are communities who also have, have something to say about this. And if these meetings are just about um, really saving um, industry and saving workers' jobs and, and really working for the people in the communities, then let's, as James said, be completely open, transparent, publish the, the meeting minutes. You know, Fiona Hislop was very, was Alistair. you know, did a lot of, of, of talking around that, but she didn't talk about that. Alistair, ministers would presumably say they are, they are talking to the communities, but if they're going to get some transformation, they also have to talk to those who are, you know, frankly, bringing investment to the table as well. Yeah, I mean, you want to then, then to talk to as many people as possible and all the people who are involved in decisions who could be involved. I think one of the issues here is that it's maybe not so much that shady things are necessarily going on, but it's the perception that there's a lack of transparency. It's just as bad. Well, not just as bad, but it's it's a problem in and of itself. So that uh-huh. just that the lobbying register has these loopholes and that perception can exist. It's not conducive to, you know, a healthy situation. So I think that... Yeah, that I mean, I, I, Andy, yeah, what, what about that? What yeah. about those those loopholes and the gaps? I want to close all. I, I just think there's too many. There's 13 exemptions in the lobbying register. Too many. I mean, I, I just don't see why you need to do that. I mean, certainly from my point of view, I think it's unhelpful. I actually over-register. I've had stuff come back to me from the registrar saying you can't register this. It's not registrable. Whereas I want to register it because I think it's a good thing that people know who's seeing who and about what. But you see, I think this is where I, don't, I actually don't think James and Karen and I are that. I know. I, I know that we kind of want the story demands somebody like me to be on the wrong side of it. But I actually don't think that we're all that far apart on it. I mean, 90%, at least 90%, I don't know, of my client base is SMEs or charities. And I want lots more of that going on on the lobbying register, far more of that, because I think that's right. I think that you can't just listen to the biggest, but whether it's a trade union or a big corporation or whoever it is, you can't only listen to the biggest voice. You have to listen to the other voices as well. When you're trying to you know, set up a meeting or trying to push a case, just you know, maybe James as well in a moment, but how do you, how do, you do it? How do you go about it? What would it do, you, do you write to the, the, the department? Do you contact private office? Do you contact backbenches? What, what do you do when you're trying to get access for a case? Andy, please, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's quite variable depending on who the client is, what the topic is. Uh, and whether it's a minister or a special advisor or an MSP. But in general terms, I, I try to use off-register contact as a last resort. So I try to avoid phone calls if I possibly can. It's a bit more difficult during COVID, obviously, as you'll understand. But I try yeah. to do in-person meetings, 
uh, during COVID, I've tried to do video meetings because video like this sort of thing is registrable. Um, Zoom or StreamYard or one of the other, yeah. you have to because register, yeah. Because it's face-to-face, it's registrable, whereas okay. a phone call is not. So I try to avoid... But that does seem ridiculous, doesn't it? It just seems simply well, ludicrous. That's, that's, I know, well, I yeah, know that's the rules, isn't it? That's, that's the rules. <laughs> James, James, please. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was to get a meeting. I mean, one thing Andy said earlier on, which is definitely true, is, uh, you know, you just go in the front door. As in, if I want a meeting with an MSP, then I'll just email their MSP email address. And yeah. their staffer will say yay or nay, and do you want to have a meeting? And, and, and I'll either take it or they won't, yeah. And they'll take yeah. it, presumably, if they feel there's something interesting to hear, yeah? Yeah, so they might have a particular interest in the issues. They might, you know, if it's they're interested in litter, then they might want to meet and talk about deposit return or something else that I work on. Um, uh, and it, and it and it does you know Karen said it's about connections as well so, and and that does really matter because uh-huh. and it's sort of a should in a, and it sounds a terrible thing I'm, just, I'm going to come I'm going to be the new Andy on this bit which is if you've got a long standing relationship with an MSP and yeah. they have seen that the stuff that you've brought to them is truthful and accurate and a fair representation and you've not hidden anything from them then the next time you go to them you're going to find it easier to get a meeting than if you're cold calling them and you've never met them before and that is legitimate you know I, I Particularly on the, the environment committees last year, I built up a relationship with with members on the on the two relevant committees, and then if I want to have another meeting about something which I haven't spoken about before, it is easier to get. Uh, you know, it's just they know they're not getting sold some kind of duff line. They know they'll get something okay, which let's, is accurate. Let's bring in you know, Alistair, just, um, just one, uh, just a really you, quick, just a quick line on the yeah, back of on, that. I think it's important to emphasize is that MSPs and ministers and special advisors. So they are the three categories uh, that you need to register. MSPs, ministers, and best advisors, not only do they like lobbying, they need lobbying. And that's not just lobbying from first-party companies like my company. That's lobbying from in-house heads of communications at, you know, Organisation X. If it wasn't for lobbying, they would have very, very little to talk about when they go about their business. <laughs> surely, surely, they're a private office. If you look at the average speech in Holyrood, and you dissect that speech, a huge uh-huh. amount of any speech in Hollywood will be information which has been given to them by a third part, by, by a lobbyist. So, so, so Andy, when you, hear, when you hear a speech, you say, that's my bet, I wrote that, that's my bet. Well, not, not, not enough, obviously. Ah, oh, not you know. often enough. You're not paid enough. <laughs> Alistair, Karen, what, what do you make of what you've heard so far, particularly that point about the need to eliminate those, those loopholes? Alistair, then, Karen. Probably just repeat what I said before, that I think there is a need to to eliminate the loopholes or at least look at this issue again. Uh, I think the perception, just allowing that perception to exist is a problem in and of itself. And so, I mean, just to use an example that I know people use quite a lot when it comes to these loopholes, if you were in a a video meeting with someone, with a minister, for example, and you were on Zoom, uh, you would indeed have to register this on the the register. But if you just shut off the video in Zoom and just use audio only, looking at these rules, that would then not have to go in the lobbying register, which just seems completely... Uh, ludicrous from an outside point of view, whatever the reasoning for it was. Is, is, is that because what the legislation is behind the, the, the development and communications? Uh, I'm not sure it's the reason why for it, but uh, that, that is my it's Because we've got such persuasive faces, Brian. I mean, just look ah, at us. Who that's, that's what it is. One, one, one look at that beard and those specs and you, you sign up immediately. Karen, on what you've heard so far. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that, that Scotland could do this really well, right? We've got an opportunity at the moment to close these loopholes to yeah. really kind of like uh, achieve our, our ambitions to be properly transparent. And I know we're going to come on and talk about this later on, but yeah. when you compare even the situation here just now, even with Westminster, where you've got, you know, a very only registered lobbyists have to have to be on the ro- register of lobbyists. Um, 
it's not even loopholes there. It's just absolute, you know, sort of falling straight down into a pit. So, uh, you know, um, we we could do this differently here. And there's very clear things we could do to make that, um, to change that. And I think that, that what, what a lobbying register does is, you know, it can help you to look in the mirror. Now, there's another thing about that, which is that you have to make that accessible to the public because it's all very well saying, oh, it's all there. But if people can't just easily access that information, then, you know, that's that's not that's a bit disingenuous in, in my experience in my experience as well karen i mean we, i hear andy and james saying that you can you can just email a, an msp or contact a committee clerk you can i know that for certain and i've advised people regularly to do that but folk are scared folk are scared to do that they think there's this this network of cleverness or this network of access this network of influence and and that they, they think they have to you know they have to have all these the, these skills and these techniques and and these systems and they, they don't do they they Karen first, then Andy, I see come and try to come in. Karen first. Mm. When the Scottish government, you know, they, they did do some open government things that were really interesting, going to different places, going to schools, going to islands, yeah. making themselves more accessible and out of the building. Now, I totally understand, you know, we've had COVID. It's that. been yeah. an like, incredibly difficult year yeah. for everyone, um, politicians, no less. Um, but, you know, let's try and make government more accessible in lots of different ways. Let's try and look at the systems. Let's try and look at what we're trying to achieve here. The SNP say they're trying to achieve a uh, an increase like you know a decrease in inequalities that's a really key thing we're not doing that so how can we make democracy more equitable for people let's bring in andy mckeever and then i'm going to move on to some other topics yeah just i mean i think i don't want to downplay james and i because people like james and i have some skills um and you know one of those is actually being able to uh, as we would call it package up something that one of our clients does and make it interesting so, you know, I'll have a client come to me and a charity say will come to me and say, this is what we do. Um, and I'll say, oh, right, I see. See that thing here that you do? That's actually quite interesting. I think MSPs might be interested in that. And they, because yeah. they're not experienced in the political system or the media or anything else, they won't necessarily know that what they're doing is of interest. And our job is to say, actually, that looks really good. Let's build something around that and tell the story to politicians. And that is where... Um, the foot in the door is not difficult, as as we've talked about. You send an email, right? It's not hard. Let, let, the hard bit is to actually create something that means that means something and that gets you the meeting. Thanks, Andy. Alistair, we're going to move on to some of the other issues, vast range of issues, as I said, raised in the in the series. Just bring us up to speed on on some some of the others, the, the other topics that have been raised this week. Yeah, I mean, as you say, vast range of issues. I mean, yeah. encourage people to go and to go and read the, the kind of days and days of investigations by the ferret. But just to go into some of them, a lot of it's to do with ownerships. We've got kind of the, the ownership patterns of wind farms, for example. I think the finding was that nearly a third of Scotland's biggest wind farms have owners linked to offshore tax havens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got looking at the whiskey industry as well, where nearly seventy percent of malt whiskey distilleries are ultimately owned by companies out with Scotland. Um, and I think today as well, quite an interesting kind of focus on quangos. Um, which basically yeah. found chief executives of Quango was appointed by the Scottish government uh, were paid more than £10 million last year. And I think maybe people won't be surprised that some of these people earn quite a lot of money considering the size of these organisations. Um, but I think just to use one particular example, I think it is quite eye-watering to see the amount of money that's paid to Tim Hare, who is the turnaround director of Ferguson Marine, who was paid, who, who is paid £790,000 uh, annually, which I mean, I don't know the market rates of these kind of things are, but it just seems like a an extraordinary sum of money. Karen, Karen, fa- thanks, uh, Alice. I'll bring you back in in a few minutes as well. Um, uh, Karen, what, what what do you take from from these findings? Is it the Quango pay that jumps out for you? Is it the the extent of of 
offshore investment is the extent of ownership out with Scotland? I think all of them are interesting. I think yeah. I found the, the the wind farms, which my colleague Rob Edwards, who's a, a veteran of, of environmental journalism, worked on. Amen. Um, and uh, yeah, had looked at the 50 biggest wind farms um, in Scotland. Now, for me, what's really fascinating as we come up again to, to kind of COP26 and the whole climate emergency is that we're now really having to make that transition away from fossil fuels. And so there's been a lot of kind of hand-wringing about what happened with Scotland's oil, about how that resource was allowed um, to, to kind of uh, go to, to kind of foreign ownership and yeah. to not to come into Scotland's own e- economic purse. Now, to find out that over a third of, of um, wind farms have got links to offshore tax havens surely must ring alarm bells for people who see this as possibly a, a chance that maybe wind as, as Scotland's new oil, as, uh, as another opportunity. You contacted really- the owners, of course, and some of them said that, that this was standard practice and they had to be competitive. Yeah. And others said that the, the offshore companies that they had a link to uh, played no part in the in the, the, the wind operations. And you made that very clear in your, your piece. But let's bring in bring in James McKenzie on, on, on that point first. And then I'll bring in Andy, perhaps, on the, the um, Quango Pay. James. Uh, yes, to declare an interest, my only current renewable client is actually Solar Energy Scotland. So um, I don't have an interest in wind farms at the moment, but I have worked on some in the past. And they I have any offshore, is a, offshore investment connection? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, this is a trade association. So anyway, okay. um, <laughs> I'm happy to, happy to reply yeah. to you uh, after, the, after the meeting about that. Um, in general, I think this is, this is a symptom of failure. And I think it's the failure from it's a two decades worth of failure where we didn't embed community ownership. We embedded a kind of tepid bit of community benefit into renewables projects. And actually, if you if you just say we're, we're going to make it really difficult for people to put renewables in, we're going to be super hostile to onshore wind, which ministers have been at a UK and a Scottish government level. Then the people who can do it are the people with deep pockets who are who are potentially not paying all their full tax. And, and it's, it's a symptom of how we chose to let projects go ahead. And it, we, we could have, I mean, Karen's right, you know, we had, a, we had an oil boom. And if we'd been organized, we could have had a, a Scottish domestic renewables boom over the last 20 years. But we just didn't do it. And so we're left with the kind of, not all, I mean, there's loads of good companies working on it, Scottish-based and international. Um, but we're, there's a chunk who are, who are cutting corners because they were allowed to cut corners. It's a failure of regulation. Thanks for that. And, and um, Andy, perhaps on that as well, and then on the, the, the Quango Pay, where some, I mean, you know, Mr. Hare isn't here to defend himself, but some would say you have to pay the rate for a, for a very challenging job. I think there's, um, I think the root of the Quango issue, in my view, is transparency rather than pay. Pay is sometimes the consequence of that lack of transparency. I think at the root of it is an issue with the number of Quangos uh, that we have, and the level of and the fact that they're not, you know, they're not accountable to anybody. They sit in this no man's land between, uh, yeah. you know, kind of almost political and almost not. So, in some cases, these executives will be on reasonable market pay. I mean, if you take, I don't know, for instance, I'm going to um, say Scottish Water because I think it was mentioned in your piece today. Scottish yeah, Water. It is, yeah, yeah. Now, Scottish Water, the, the chief executive of Scottish Water will have to be paid a reasonable market rate because he's. Probably, I I don't know his history, but he's probably competing uh, with chief execs in the English water companies, for instance. And you need somebody, uh, given the the strategic and infrastructure importance of Scottish water, you need somebody of significant quality to do that job. And and that may be, I don't know if that's market pay or not for that job, but there will be some big pace, you know, there'll be some big pay packets in Uh Quangos because there have to be, because you have to get people 
to do that job rather than drifting off the private sector. To Karen, Karen, uh, comment on that. But you, Karen, comment on that. But you also found gender imbalance as well, didn't you? Yeah. So first of all, just on that point around, yes. um, you know, paying market rates and so on, um, and, and on the accountability issue. I mean, that's what I what, what I heard from from a lot of commentators was that there was a lack of accountability. And that that stretched right across the range of, of decisions that were being made by by Quangos to um, the fact that the hires and, and and pay was set by by Scottish ministers rather than having having scrutiny over it. Um, in terms of the the market rates, you know, I heard from from um, the high pay centre that one of the things that can be done around that is really to try and kind of uh, foster talent in house and, and not be so reliant on the private sector to, to bring people in. Um, and I suppose the Scottish government recognises that point too, because in their current um, pay policy for for Quangos, there is an expectation that every time there's a new hire of a chief executive, will reduce by ten percent. So there definitely is a as acknowledgement of that being an issue okay. in terms of the gender issue. Well, yes, yeah. we are making some progress, and those targets that that Nicholas Sturgeon put in a few years ago about um, uh, the number of, of of women on on public sector boards have been, I would say, probably quite successful. You know, we, we are seeing more women in those roles, but we are seeing that they are paid less. Overall, they were paid half a million pounds less in a year. And we saw a lot less women chief execs, a lot less in the in the top 10, top 20 of, yeah. of people that were highly paid. Okay, Andy, Andy, I'm bringing James in a second. Andy, on the issue of, of ownership, I mean, the example cited was the, the whiskey industry, nearly 70% of malt whiskey distillers ultimately owned by companies out with Scotland. I mean, is is it just the case that them's the breaks or is there anything we, we can do about that? Or do we not need to do anything about that in your opinion? Look, I think that there's, uh, you, you can treat this as an issue of globalisation. There are companies based in Scotland who own assets in foreign countries and, you know, the profits of those assets come back here in the form of corporation tax and so on, and we benefit from that. We we tend in this country not not to particularly like when our own industries are owned uh, by other foreign multinationals, and you know that's if if that's your kind of ideological bent, then that's fine. I think though James is right if I interpreted what he said earlier correctly that this is really a bit academic because it's a historic issue in terms of the way that this actually came about, and there's probably not an enormous amount that can be done about it now, to be honest with you. These are still industries which generate a lot of jobs, of course, uh, and uh, are extremely worthy and, in fact, critical in terms of uh, net zero and so on. But, um, you know, I, I think you, to a degree you take the rock to smooth. If you, if you, if you believe in uh, globalisation, then you're uh-huh. going to have situations where some of our industries have foreign interests. And if you don't want that, you probably have to set them up differently at their origin. Uh-huh. James? Yeah, it's actually funny. I was um, having a conversation about some of this with Andrew Wilson, who will be known to people on, on here, who, who was making the argument that, that this country ought to have had and indeed should still have kind of national capital investment vehicle, which funds the kind of clean energy transition or other like desirable projects that the country needs. And, you know, I'm very fond of Andrew, but it's hardly a radical, but that's still way beyond anything that we have been doing. We have just let the free market rip with this stuff. I just wanted to come back to the high pay stuff on Quangos. Yes, please. Right. Yes, yes. Happy um, and, and actually, it, it's, this is probably what one might call a kind of relatively simplistic socialist perspective, uh, vulgar Marxism, if you will. But £750,000 sounds like an implausible amount of money for me, for anyone to own, for anyone to earn. Um, uh, and I would personally like to see either, either an, an upper cap on salaries paid by the public sector or another slightly more 
cautious proposal. I mean, this is this is in fact a Tory position, or it was in the early seventies. Top tax rate of seventy five percent worked for Ted Heath. Um, it's a long way above what we are now, but I think if people are being paid an enormous amount of money, then uh, the, the tax rate should reflect it. And just just a reminder Go that on, the yeah. average the average salary in Scotland is around twenty five thousand pounds. So just you know to to put that in perspective. But again, again, if I, you know, playing devil's advocate, the, the guy that's being asked to turn around Ferguson Marine, that, that, that is one hell of a job. Well, it's one hell of a salary as well. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Alison, let, let's take us on to one that, that um, Karen trailed earlier. I certainly want to talk about this. We've talked so far about Holyrood, but this series has also looked at, at, at UK government issues and Scotland office issues, hasn't it? Bring us up to speed on that, please. Yeah, so I think one of the examples here that uh, the Ferret looked at was the companies involved in arms manufacture, the arms industry. Yeah. Um, so I think they found that five firms who employ, I think it was three, three quarters of the workforce in Scotland's arms industry had thousands of closed door meetings with the UK government between 2011 and 2020. Again, 87 people uh, that worked for one of these firms also worked for the UK government. So there's an issue of this kind of what people call the revolving door between government yeah. and outside industries. I, I, to go back to earlier argument about lobbying, I think people would maybe view uh, the kind of access of companies involved in, in these kind of things with, with maybe more of a, a kind of interest in, in full transparency than they would for maybe charities. That would be the public perception anyway. Uh, Karen, one of the, you, you looked at the Scotland office in particular and it said that 90% of the meetings involving ministers were with industry bodies and business groups. But might that not be... Because all the other stuff like health and education and, and, and transport and that is, is devolved. And so what they're left with is, is the, the macroeconomy. To a certain extent, but I would, I would just say the same, as you said before to me about ministers and, and energy. You don't need to just listen to business because you're working in the economy. The economy is many things. You know, we talk about things like the well-being economy. Well, where is that in the picture? You know, we talk about um, economy uh, it affects everyone's lives. And so you shouldn't just be hearing from people who have got vested interests. And if you are a business, if you are industry, you, you have a, a duty to your shareholders. You have a duty to make money. And therefore, you're not there just to represent the, the good of the community. I so you're almost saying there is a stock view of the economy and, and that is amplified and, and underlined by, by the contacts that, that come again from you Absolutely. Know, a stock and standard position. You end up with a, you know, with, with a, with a bias and, and, and that is a, a confirmation bias that, that repeats. J- James, then Andy. So, you know, we, we talked about what the difference it makes to have regular meetings with, with ministers, if you get in the door a lot. And obviously, basic PR and comms, if somebody hears your message a lot, they're more likely to take it in and internalise it. And I've got just a, a, a 20-year-old joke for you uh, from Blair's second term. Who are the two most powerful people in Britain? And the answer is Tony Blair and whoever he last spoke to. And so <laughs> when you see the volume of meetings from, from the arms industry, and actually that's happening in Scotland, uh, Karen's colleague Billy did a piece about you know the amount of meetings they have with Scottish ministers, the millions of pounds that the arms industry gets from the Scottish government, even though uh, you know defence is is reserved. So I definitely I would definitely be concerned about it. And, but Karen, overall, you, you Westminster is like a black hole. Oh, yeah, I'll bring bring in Andy a second. Karen, you mentioned earlier you thought the situation regarding lobbying w- w- was much less satisfactory in in Westminster than, than it is in Holyrood. Of course, yes, and and you know you only have to uh, register on the on a on a register of 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 lobbyists of official lobbyists in Westminster. So if you're doing that in house, that doesn't need to appear at all. Um, it, you know we know that things are in Westminster just now are not good. There's been scandal after scandal, and I suppose that undermines the point that campaigners are making here to make things more transparent because we can't be complacent. 
you know, people need to be able to be held to account. It's a healthy thing for democracy. And that's not happening currently in Westminster. And Andy, what's your take on the Westminster situation? I, I agree, actually. Uh, and so do a lot of lobbyists at Westminster. Uh, somebody who probably a few of you will know, Ian Anderson from Cicero and Aberdonian, who mm. runs Cicero, an agency down in London. He, Ian has said many times before that he wants to move towards a Scottish-style system at Westminster because he finds the Westminster system unsatisfactory. Um, on the Scotland office issue, yeah. um, I think I, I'd like to see that compared to the other Westminster departments. I think it's quite problematic to analyse the Scotland office on its own because the vast majority of lobbying going towards the Scotland office will, by definition, not be about devolved areas. Yeah. So it's actually a little bit distorting, I think, to look at what goes into the Scotland office and see that as being real, in a sense. It's not not an accurate view, I suspect, of UK government as a whole. Um, And I think it's not an accurate view of what, what Scottish companies lobby on because they'll just be lobbying a Scotland office and things that are in their competence. Uh, let, than... let, I'm going I'm to draw the close. We're coming to them. Let's get a final word from each. Um, start with James. What, 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 what change would you make to the system, particularly of lobbying, but also of, of, of ownership? What change would you make and why? Um, I would actually, I would deal with something we've not touched on here. I would ban all company donations to political parties, in addition to making oh. all ministers' meetings public. And I would cap individual donations too at about 2,000 a year. I think that's where the real problem lies. Somebody gives money to the Tory party and then they get a, a policy decision. So they get, the private money goes to the Tory party and the Tory party gives public money to the company. That's where the real grift is happening at Westminster. And, and Andy McKeever, you, you, I, I won't ask you to comment on that because you used to work for the Conservative Party, admittedly, rather a long, long time ago. But uh, what, 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 what change would you make and why? I would close the exemptions. There's too many exemptions. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if we close the exemptions and we open, up a lot more transparency in it. What I want to see is a situation where people start to understand that what we do is actually relatively dull, normal work. Um, and if we close the exemptions and people start to realise that, then I think that will actually be helpful for everybody. Thank you for that. Alistair, Alistair and then Karen. Alistair Grant. Yeah, I would, I would take another look at the exemptions. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist, so transparency is, is a good thing in terms of stories. And it's also a good thing for the public. So, yeah. In favour of openness. And finally, Karen Goodwin from the Ferret. Karen, please. So transparency is certainly important, but also there's more to, uh, to equal access than just making it transparent. So I would make sure that we found new and innovative ways of having more diversity of thought and diversity of all kinds, um, getting, getting the ears of ministers and people with power and influence. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, one and all. That's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the series all week in the Herald. As, as uh, Alistair said, you can still catch up with it. You can, you can uh, uh, register and, and uh, take out a subscription to, to the Herald generally and catch up on all of that series. To my two journalists, to my two lobbyists, to, to all of you who, who listen and will catch up with this programme later. Many, many thanks indeed and toodaloo the new. This podcast was brought to you by the Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene.